This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And in this episode, we're talking about Vladimir Putin's control of Russia. Today, June 25th, Russians began voting on a constitutional referendum that if passed, as is expected, would allow President Putin to stay in power until 2036. The vote comes on the heels of a massive military parade in Moscow to honor the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II and the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany. During the victory parade, Putin's message to citizens was confident, and he focused on Russian power and patriotism. But currently, Putin's approval rating is the lowest it's been in the 20 years he's been in power. The country ranks third in the world for confirmed COVID-19 cases, and the IMF expects the Russian economy to contract by 6.6% in 2020. As the voting begins in Russia, an extraordinary and important new book has just come out revealing new understandings of how Putin came to power, how a group of former KGB agents and networks run the country, and the implications for the West. The book is Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Turned on the West. And I'm very pleased to be joined by the book's author, Catherine Belton, who is an investigative journalist and the former Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. Welcome to Deep Dish, Catherine. It's great to have you here. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. It's really good to join you. So I usually start these conversations with the historical context for contemporary events. But today I want to flip it on its head and start with the referendum and understanding what the referendum is, and then talk about the story that you've got in your book, which really sets us up for where we are today. So um, briefly, what's in this referendum? What's at stake? For Putin, it's really very important to get the referendum through. Um, he's Essentially, he's running out of options and the people around him are running out of options. They really do need to hold on to power because uh, if they don't, uh, they've conducted various nefarious activities along the way to shoring up their power over the last 20 years. And if they're not able to prolong their rule, they don't know what kind of backlash they may face, whether it be jail sentence or otherwise. So they've been desperately fishing for a way uh, to prolong Putin's rule. Uh, According to the current constitution, he's uh, meant to step down after serving two consecutive terms as president. And currently he's due to step down in 2024. And they've been casting about for ways to change things for a while. They'd been mulling, uh, merging Russia more closely with uh, Belarus and neighboring former Soviet its state. But the leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, was very clearly resisting. So they tried to find another way. And then they thought about maybe tinkering with the constitution a little bit in a way that would allow sort of Putin to perhaps recede a bit into the shadows and become a dear leader, a father of the nation type as a head of a state council. And well, there would be a new president, but then they decided that was too risky because who knows, what guarantees they'd have for a new president uh, against sort of encroaching on any of their ill-gotten gains. Uh, So in the end, they came out and said, okay, uh, we're going to change the constitution. And under a new constitution, that means uh, Putin has served zero terms under a new constitution. So essentially, he can start all 
over again as president and serve another two six-year terms as president, so which would allow him to rule until 2036. And they had these grand plans in place. They were going to hold the referendum, uh, sort of confirming all these changes. It was like a nationwide plebiscite on Putin's rule. They were originally going to hold it in April but then, of course, the pandemic got in the way. Uh, the virus was sort of rapidly spreading at that time. So Russia, like everywhere else, went into lockdown and they decided to postpone the vote. Originally, they were thinking of holding it uh, much later in the year, in September. Uh, but and uh, it turned out that as the pandemic spread, uh, Putin was really seen to be quite distant. Uh, he was leaving the managing of the day-to-day handling of the crisis to his subordinates in the government or to regional leaders. Uh, the economy's taking a hit. Uh, Russia isn't in a position to bail out small and medium businesses like we've seen in other uh, countries in, in Western Europe. And, and really his popularity has been falling as a result. And also the Russian economy hasn't been doing too well either because of falling oil prices. So as you mentioned yourself, his his uh, popularity rating is at a 20-year low. Uh, and I think they decided they couldn't risk waiting till September, by which time the economic fallout might be even worse. And they're still uh, rushing it through. Uh, they've held the parade, uh, even though uh, the heads of some cities in Russia uh, quite astonishingly have said that they're not going to hold the parade because they worry that the virus is still too rampant uh, where they are. And they're rushing through the vote, even though even some election offices uh, locally have refused to hold the vote because of the virus. But they're still rushing ahead because they need the stamp of approval on Putin's rule to, to continue in power. They don't have any other way of doing it. And the fear is uh, sort of former election officials or speaking about this now and other opposition leaders, the fear is is that the vote is going to be uh, uh, basically uh, massaged to make sure that Putin has, of course, won with a clear margin. And your book does a brilliant job of detailing just why this is so important to Putin and the people who run Russia. And I want to unpack the story that you tell in the book. Uh, one of the things that I think you do so effectively is dismantle a number of narratives that Putin has put forward about important points in history. And I want to start at the very beginning where this, with, where this begins with Putin's career as a KGB agent in Dresden, which is often portrayed he was just a minor paper pusher in a battle backwater, um, not a not a capital. And your research tells a different story of what he was doing and also draws interesting links of that period and how he thinks about ruling today. What did you find? Yes, I think they very did a very good job of, of covering up what he was actually up to there. Uh, so various uh, ex-colleagues of his who served in the KGB at the same time have written books about how the very fact they were in Dresden meant that essentially their careers were over. It was such a backwater. All they did was take tourist trips and write senseless reports. Putin himself at one point said, you know, he was so bored 
he had nothing else to do but drink beer and put on a lot of weight during that time. But none of the photos uh, of him at that time really seemed to suggest that. And in fact, what they did uh, when the Berlin Wall fell was very quickly destroy all documents, which also might point to other evidence. They either burnt all the documents or they shipped them via the truckload uh, back to Moscow. They were very, very eager to cover up what they were do- what they were doing. And there were a couple of things that they uh, it became clear that uh, they were up to. Um, Dresden was a very important hub then for technology smuggling. In those days, the West had imposed uh, an embargo against the export of, of technology that could could be used for military means into the Soviet Union or into the Eastern Bloc. Um, and, but really, this was key technology that, that the Soviet Union required. It was very far behind in computer technology. It was already in the race against the Star Wars uh, kind of missiles that and defense shield that uh, Ronald Reagan wanted to put in place. So it was really a, a key uh, channel. And uh, Putin's allies were... Uh, clearly involved in uh, smuggling technology at the time uh, through uh, Dresden, which was also home to a big uh, computer factory called Robotron, where they'd already very successfully cloned the IBM, and they were eager to get their hands on more. But what they were also doing, which was uh, sort of crucial at the time, sort of it was already 1985 by the time Putin made it to Dresden, and already uh, the foreign intelligence on where he served um was pretty uh, was pretty clear to them that, uh, that essentially the the Eastern Bloc was living on borrowed time. That East Germany was too. That uh, dissent was rising, and that they wouldn't be able to contain it. And they also knew that the under the planned economy of the Soviet Union and of the entire Eastern Bloc, they weren't going to be able to compete with the West. They knew that there had to be some reforms to begin allowing competition within the economies of the entire. Eastern Bloc. So they knew that things were going to change and very quietly they began preparing. And through some of these technology deals, they sort of faked contracts, created through front companies and used them as a means to begin siphoning tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Deutschmarks into front companies in Liechtenstein, Singapore and other places. And they did so uh, through one Stasi agent in particular called Martin Schlaff, who later appeared as a key cog in the Putin regime's broader financial empire. And what they were doing this for was to make sure that their intelligence networks could continue to run even after a communist collapse. They were making contingency plans so that their agents could continue to to run. And sort of Putin was also involved in an operation led by the KGB called Operation Sunbeam, in which they were also seeking out uh, political operatives in East Germany that could continue to work for them even after a fall, uh, even after the collapse of the communist regime. And the other uh, very interesting thing that um, I found when speaking to some of his former comrades then uh, was that Putin was also involved in something called active measures and these are efforts to disrupt and destabilize uh, the West 
West, which, as we know, uh, the Soviet Union and Russia today has long seen as the, the main adversary. And so what Putin was doing, according to one defector, uh, he was seeking to obtain a poisonous substance which didn't leave any trace. He was trying to gain it from a professor and he wanted to do so by planting pornographic material on him. We're not sure uh, whether this operation ever came off, but it's certainly some a tactic that they've used in other operations since that we've seen sort of Putin's regime uh, uh, very ably planting uh, compromising information on other politicians that they need to control. Um, we also know from a defector who defected to the West who worked with Putin then that he uh, was supposedly a handler of a neo-Nazi who first went into the West and then returned to Dresden uh, after the fall of the wall and stoked the rise of the far right. And of course uh, we see Russia today funding uh, extreme left and extreme right parties across Europe trying to uh, sow chaos and disrupt the order that we've known for a long time since the end of the Cold War. And uh, the other most disturbing thing that I found was that there was another uh, a former associate of his who turned out to be a former member of the Red Army faction, the Bader-Meinhof group, which is a far-left terror group. And he said, actually, Dresden was very important because precisely because it was a backwater far away from the spying eyes of the West, who'd concentrated all their efforts on East Berlin. And Dresden was forgotten. Uh, uh, and what uh, this former Red Army faction member said was that they, they would travel from the West into East Berlin by train, then get in a Zill car, drive to Dresden, where they'd have meetings with KGB officers and Stasi officers, including Putin, and they would receive not orders, but suggestions on potential targets for bomb attacks, assassination attempts, and so on. And they'd also uh, kind of hand over wish lists for help with weapons and cash. And, and the KGB officers and the Stasi officers would duly assist them in that. And he, indeed, he said, Putin was taking the lead. And this is very interesting. It was a very, it was a credible source. I spoke to him for many hours. I visited him three times uh, there were documents that he shared which backed up his story um, I can't tell you thing, anything more about him but unfortunately wasn't able to verify uh, this information with other uh, associates because all of the members of the Red Army faction are either in prison or dead To fast forward the story another area that you touch on where you unmask another myth is Putin as an accidental president. I think many people forget or are unaware that Putin was you know, handpicked uh, as a successor to uh, President Boris Yeltsin by Yeltsin in his inner circle. And you point out there's no accident about it. Why was Putin chosen? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, and it sort of stems back in a way to a central question that I was trying to answer really when I began writing the book. And that's sort of what did happen to the so the security services after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, everyone in the West seemed to presume that the KGB had simply downed weapons, that they were a bust and that they'd join the kind of rush for consumerism, that they didn't really care about the old, old ideals that they'd fought against the West for, for, for so long. Um, actually, that wasn't quite 
correct. Uh, most Russians I know are really very stubborn. And even if the KGB were uh, abandoning communism, which they really did en masse, they kind of believed it was communism that was really failing them in the struggle against the West, that it, the planned economy and this ideology didn't really serve them their purpose. So really they were sort of helping speed the rush to the, the market economy and uh, they were preparing for the fall and they were preparing to preserve networks. So when Yeltsin came to power, uh, some of them even assisted him on the way and others uh, like Putin uh, attached themselves to uh, the new leaders of, of Russia's democracy. Putin was uh, served as a deputy to the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, who really was one of the most rousing orators of, of Russia's new democratic era. But in the background, uh, Putin was running most of the economy of St. Petersburg, and he was able to funnel cash from the economy also into sort of networks and funding the his allies in the KGB. They were creating slush funds, which would allow them to preserve their position. They were very much in the shadows and Again, later when Putin moved to Moscow uh, in 96, he rose very rapidly through the ranks of the Kremlin, but he was always very quiet, unassuming, distinctly lacking any ambition, or at least it seemed. Uh, uh, but really, all the way, he was being uh, supported by a clan of security uh, officials who really seized the moment uh, and saw that they had a chance to return uh, following a horrible financial crisis in August 98, which left Yeltsin incredibly politically weakened uh, because uh, the population had their savings wiped out all over again. Uh, Yeltsin was also ill. The parliament of the time was dominated by communists and really they, they wanted uh, Yeltsin impeached. So Yeltsin and his family who were running the Kremlin then were in deep trouble. Uh, and really it was going to be uh, someone from the KGB who was going going to be taking it over from them. They really didn't have any choice at that point. And already Yeltsin had been backed into a corner to such a degree. He'd been forced into appointing as his prime minister, uh, old uh, Soviet-era dinosaur Yevgeny Primakov, who headed Russia's foreign intelligence services. Uh, he really didn't want Primakov to take over from him. Primakov was also involved in a plot uh, in which uh, Compromising information had been found on the president and his family. They were trying to use uh, the fact that they'd been given credit cards supposedly as kickbacks for a big Kremlin reconstruction project against Yeltsin and his family. So they had a real legal threat hanging over their head. Um, and really, the Yeltsin family were, were quite desperate uh, at that point. They saw that they couldn't hand over power anymore to anyone that they considered uh, liberal. Uh, Yeltsin's uh, son-in-law to be and his chief of staff then, Valentin Yumashev, said that in the 90s we swallowed so much freedom we were almost poisoned by it. They knew they had no alternative but to pick from one from the, someone from the security services. Yeltsin's choice was a much softer guy, a guy 
guy called Sergei Stepashin, but the Yeltsin family feared that he wouldn't be strong enough to protect them against prosecution over the credit cards, and Putin was there in the background almost as a plan B of the security services, and he was very ably... Uh, able to to demonstrate to the Yeltsin family that he was loyal, he would protect them, uh, he presented himself as a liberal, he certainly paid lip service to these ideas, and uh, they wanted to believe him, but more than anything, they needed someone to protect them. They believed that they were saving the country from a communist revenge, but in fact, they were delivering uh, the country into the hands of the most ruthless clan of security services, which Putin led uh, from St. Petersburg, who'd had to sort of forge their way through the the chaos of the 90s in St. Petersburg, where they essentially joined hands with organized crime to run the city's economy. So they were, it was the clan of security service officials who'd really stop at nothing to acquire power. And and this is, you know, in many ways, the heart of the book is the story of the, the way that they reclaim the levers of uh, political and financial power at the time and and create the system that exists today. Could you take us through kind of how do they do that? Um, you know, you've established that Putin is part, he's not a solo actor, but he's part of this group of, of security service folks. Um, and, and they they do come in to seize control, political and, and economic control. And, and maybe the emblematic episode is the prosecution of Mikhail Kordakovsky and the seizure of his oil company. What happened and how does this fit into the broader strategy of what they did once they got power? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, yes, you're right. Uh, The takeover of Mikhail Khodorkovsky's oil company was once Russia's biggest, was really the the key moment for them. It's sort of when they tasted blood and they realized that they could take over the country's uh, strategic cash flows. And they really needed they believed that they needed to because they thought Hodokovsky, uh, he was Russia's richest man then. They thought he was too independent, that he was going to challenge them politically, that he could turn his billions against them. And this was sort of an excuse for them, and but it also it was one that kind of allowed them to proceed uh, and justify their takeover of his company. But the key thing about the takeover was the fact that they used the 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 country's court system to essentially sort of uh, retroactively and selectively uh, apply laws against Hodokovsky to to throw him in jail uh, and to take over his company. And essentially they were uh, bending the country's court system to their will. They were intimidating and threatening judges. Indeed, I have one very compelling eyewitness account about uh, how they precisely they did that. And it was really the moment when the rest of Russian business uh, realized they had to toe the line, that they had to become essentially no more oligarchs, but indeed vassals of the Kremlin. It was a kind of... A, a, sort of a, a creeping process, but they realized that it was the time when when power had shifted decisively uh, the way of, of Putin and his uh, cronies from, from the KGB, that they could use the entire uh, system of law enforcement as a predatory machine to, to take over their businesses so that they had to be loyal, they had to follow orders from the Kremlin. And this was the time 
when Putin's men essentially they they got an appetite for this and they took over Yukus and then they took over uh, some other key companies and they did so uh, in a in a way in which they also managed to keep Western investors on board and this was also kind of crucial in how they built their system because they very quickly realized that as long as they kind of uh, paid lip service to some kind of legal niceties that they made it look good that there were sort of they kind of tried to establish good reason uh, for uh, going after Horokovsky they would claim that it was over tax evasion but in fact that they were very much selectively applying laws and retroactively abolishing uh, existing laws which which Hodokovsky had had used and so they they kind of used this sort of legalese uh, reasons for which that the Western investors could could accept uh, and to some degree even though they knew that the entire court system was essentially buckling under the will of the Kremlin but Western they realized that Western investors actually didn't care as long as they got a piece of the action as long as they were uh, allowed to take part in the Kremlin's asset grab and this is when Putin and his KGB guys could essentially identify this crucial weakness in the West and then use it to their own advantage because as Putin's men began taking over the country's cash flows they had tens of billions of dollars and then hundreds of billions of dollars at their command. And what's always been a, a sort of a slight oversight on the part of, of Western analysis of, of how and why they were doing this, it was always assumed this was just out of greed that Putin's men, the security men around him, just wanted to line their own pockets. Of course they did, but there's only so many mansions and yachts that you can buy with tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. What they were doing was sort of recreating uh, slush funds of the Soviet era on a on a massive scale and they were able to sort of uh, direct uh, the funds at their command uh, whether it be through sort of uh, shady offshore companies uh, that no one knew who that who was behind or whether it was through oligarchs who were no longer oligarchs but obedient servants of the Kremlin that they could divert these funds and funnel them into the West and and use the massive slush funds to begin buying off Western officials and undermining Western democracies. So I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of this this whole story is that it's not (laughs) lining pockets primarily, and it's also not going into state coffers, but this is this shadowy network of untraceable, unaccountable war chests of wealth. Um, And some of the things that we're done were also in support of, of foreign policy actions, such as the seizure of Crimea in 2014, support of extremist political parties to destabilize the West. How do we understand how Putin and his supporters have used these funds? Yes, um, I think it's it's a it's a good question. We know that they've, as you say, they've been funding uh, extremist politics on the left and right in uh, Europe. Uh, we've seen uh, how they've used uh, some oligarchs who are very close to the Kremlin uh, to funnel money to rebels uh, who are working on behalf of the Kremlin in East Ukraine and, and stoking the uprising there. And uh, you know. Uh, 
and uh, we've seen them essentially resurrect uh, kind of the old methods of the Soviet era, uh, the way the KGB used to fund influence, influence operations in Soviet times and the way the Communist Party used to fund uh, its operations abroad was through the use of uh, so-called friendly firms, which were essentially front companies. These were front companies which would sometimes uh, supply equipment to the Soviet Union, whether it be for infrastructure or something else, and they would do so at a vastly marked up price and it would pocket the difference and use the profits to fund uh, uh, communist parties or other more nefarious activities that the KGB was up to. And we've seen that uh, replicated under Putin's regime. Indeed, an Italian magazine called L'Espresso caught uh, some Italian uh, officials uh, involved in in such discussions on tape. Uh, They recorded the Italian officials from uh, a far-right uh, Italian party, Liga Nord, in discussions with some shady uh, Russians connected to the Kremlin, uh, who they were talking about essentially recreating this system of, of friendly firms to fund Liga Nord. They were going to uh, buy some oil from Russia's state oil company, Rosneft, which, by the way, uh, took over uh, most of Yukas's Mikhail Khodorkovsky's oil company's assets at a knockdown price a long time ago. Previously, they were going to buy oil from Rosneft at a knockdown price uh, and pocket the difference and use the difference to fund the activities of Liga Nord, which was swearing to kind of uh, create an alliance of kind of parties uh, across Europe that were loyal to the Kremlin. So I want to bring this story to the to the contemporary um, period and the constitutional referendum that we started with and its importance for protecting Putin and those in power should now be very clear uh, to our listeners. And I want to ask a couple of questions about what the world looks like after this referendum passes, as is expected. And, and one of my questions is, Can the short-term power games and economic corruption that you've just described, which has afforded enormous uh, political and financial power to to Putin and his associates, is it sustainable or does it lead to the same kind of vulnerability and potential collapse that was experienced by the Soviet Union? I think it does lead to a vulnerability. I think they're sort of uh, repeating the the same mistakes of the Soviet period. Um, It seems it's, it's, these are brilliant tactics. Of course, Putin and his men have been able to leverage uh, weaknesses in the West that they have been able to sort of exacerbate existing divisions and sort of take advantage of the sort of widening gap between rich and poor following the 2008 financial crisis, they've really been able to sort of hone in on difficulties within the Western system. They appeal to conservative values, to those felt left behind in the rush of of globalization. And they've been able to do this in a very effective way. But as uh, one former uh, Russian government minister put it to me, he said that actually all Putin and his men are able to do is conduct black operations. They don't know how to actually run Russia's own economy. All they've been able to do is is take over the country's strategic cash flows and divert them to either shore up their own power at home 
or to kind of restore uh, Russia's standing on the world stage by uh, weakening other countries. Uh, they haven't actually been able to build a strong economy at home. And it's very clear by now that Putin doesn't have a vision for doing so. He doesn't, he isn't able to lead on this. And indeed, the only way really to spark economic growth in Russia now, uh, where uh, growth has uh, indeed been petering out before the pandemic, because the power of, of Russia's uh, ex-KGB officers is now so great. People fear to invest anything because they know uh, Putin's uh, uh, men of force can take uh, profits for them at any time that they want. So the economy has been stagnating for a long time. And as you mentioned, it's forecast to negative 66 percent growth this year. Um, so he's either he's in a pickle and he's running out of cards to play. I mean, the first two terms of his presidency, he was blessed with uh, massively rising oil prices when he returned to power in 2012, uh, you know, he, he sought this foreign adventure by seizing Crimea, which was cheered by the population because they saw him as restoring Russian power and thumbing its nose at the West. And Russia had, Russia, many Russians have felt humiliated since the Soviet collapse. But he's kind of running out of cards to play now because the economy's uh, sort of running more and more out of funds. Uh, i don't not sure whether that's going to allow him to to have any more such foreign adventures. And indeed, if he does so, it becomes more and more of a dangerous game. And many uh, businessmen that I speak to are, are worried that after the referendum, that essentially uh, it's going to be back to the USSR, more or less, because not only do they think that Putin is going to have to fake the results of the referendum to win, uh, they believe there's going to be sort of tighter control on their activities. They fear that Putin Putin's men are going to use the pandemic to clamp down on their ability to travel, that they'll have to seek permission to travel abroad in future, uh, that Putin's men are now going to use more technology, these tracking apps to keep track of anyone involved in any opposition activities. They'll use facial recognition technology. And they're just very worried that there's uh, there's no way out. But it does seem like it's, it's not sustainable because at the same time as the economy is shrinking, infighting over slices of the economic pie is growing. Uh, so um, at some point, something has got to go bust, but we don't know when. <laughs> oh, one of the things we do know uh, in this country, in the U.S., is that there will be a, an election in the fall. And you, you, in recent years during the Trump administration, U.S. policy toward Russia has seemed confused. It's certainly become highly partisan and politicized, um, driven by actions, both the administration and congressional Democrats. As we move into this election season, uh, what's your sense of, does it matter um, the outcome of the U.S. Uh, election to what unfolds in, in Russia? Can, can U.S. policy have an impact on the post-referendum uh, direction of Russia? Russian tycoons that they're worried if Biden wins, then perhaps the sanctions regime against Russia will be intensified. I think Putin is probably very much hoping that his ally, uh, Donald Trump, uh, wins the election, but that 
I mean, it doesn't look too good for Donald Trump at the moment. Um, obviously, he's very far behind in the recent polls, but still November is quite some time away and we don't know what tricks uh, his supporters have up their sleeves yet. Um, so I think it's the outcome of the election is going to be very important and also in a, in a broader sense because the way that uh, sort of Putin has been able to essentially shore up his own standing and shore up Russia's standing in the global community is not through anything constructive. It's been through displaying and exposing weaknesses in the West. Uh, so I think the, the best thing that the, the West can do uh, at the moment to help uh, Russia is sort of display leadership and start cleaning up its own act and eradicating the corruption that's allowed this erosion of, of political systems and institutions that we're seeing today. So Catherine Belton, author of the new book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Turned on the West. I want to thank you so much for being on Deep Dish and also for writing this really extraordinary book, giving us deep insight into how Russia is ruled. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from listeners like you to support our programming. So if you like the show, please consider supporting our work by going to thechicagocouncil.org slash donate. If you're looking for more Deep Dish, please tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our producer for this episode is Molly Meyer, and our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.